Uh, good morning, everybody. I feel as if I've been let out to play, um, standing up here rather than uh, being in the audience or setting up the event. So, uh, in, in view of time, I shall, I shall press straight on. I am going to address the question for this seminar directly head on. And the core issue that I'm going to be talking about in terms of the role that higher education should or does play in higher education policy making is that um, from a research and a researcher perspective, influencing policy is genuine, generally frustrating, always time consuming, often futile and frequently very unrewarding. But we have to keep on trying to do it. And what I will also focus on is how we need to get very much better at it. And I think you'll begin to see some themes that, Richard, that William has already introduced and now Julie that we'll be saying a number of the same things, albeit from one or two different perspectives. So I'm going to start, um, I'm going to base what I say on two contentions. And these are my two contentions and I'll take them in turn. The, both, the first is that political decision making has never been entirely or substantially led by research evidence, but it has in the past been much better research informed. And my second contention is that influencing policy by any which means and getting relevant research taken account of has indeed got very much harder. So let me take the first of those to begin with. Political decisions, as already been said, are expedient ones. They're driven by and dependent on political goals and by manifesto promises. They are also driven by of-the-moment objectives, not least in the last 10 or 20 years, who pays and who pays for what and where the money comes from. So over the last 50 years, which is the timescale I'm going to be talking about, policy making in relation to higher education has been predominantly reactive. The key drivers, as you all know, have been growth in demand for higher education, and most especially how it could and should be funded, alongside various ideological goals on the purpose, the value, and indeed the entire point of a higher education. And it's in this environment that relationship between research and policy becomes fractured and the gulf between the two widens. There is always going to be a tendency in this environment to look for evidence which supports a particular preferred policy direction and to diminish or ignore evidence which does not or evidence which is not helpful and most especially evidence which is equivocal. So we see now after a series of policy developments that for many of us do look as if they fly in the face of reliable evidence to reach a position where both sides are seeking something that is really unachievable. For researchers, they want to know what policy changes are being considered so that they can inform both the process and potentially the policy outcomes. And policy makers want evidence to support a set of intentions that no one has envisaged and where there is little or no research pace. And as Julie has said, they want it now. For research to stand a chance of influencing policy, it has to be accessible and it has to be timely. So in order to be accessible, it has to be clear and concise has to be specific about the policy issues being discussed and it has to be written in a language which both conveys scholarship but at the same time easily understood and easily digestible. It cannot do the latter only, it has to try and do both. And the classic error here is to assume that the research outcome in academic form or even something approximating that is at all the style of output that really is going to make have a success in influencing policy makers. And somehow this is an understanding that I think we all widely share. But in reality, there has been little change in style or approach. So good, robust research 
That is then to be suitable for submission to a high-ranking journal or to a prestigious conference presentation is going to tick all of these boxes. It's going to be rigorous and detailed. It's going to be clear on methodology and approach. It's going to be based on sound theoretical understanding and rooted in the relevant literature. The research conclusions are going to link directly and clearly to the search undertaken. For those of you in the room who are researchers, that's your given. But that's where it's likely to stop, and it is where it does stop. This is still the end point for much research, because this is usually what is sought and required, most especially when we're talking about papers and presentations. Now, of course, I can already hear the words research impact, which have already been used this morning, reverberating around the room. And yes, certainly it is the case that REF and other funder requirements for research impact statements have undoubtedly changed the ways in which some research work is contextualised, however not necessarily for good. Impact statements are just a staging post along the journey which takes research work and relates it directly to an assessment of policy implications. And certainly in the current political climate, as others have already said, with education, higher education, invested with expectations of delivering major social change, the best position to aim for is to become a trusted advisor. I can assure you it's not to be a director of the Society of Research and Higher Education. <laughs> this requires an absence of lobbying and a capacity to distill key elements from a wide range of research outputs and to set them in a politically neutral context. And the process of many consultations adopted in the last 10 years especially creates an illusion of engagement rather than a realistic and practical means of getting across valuable research evidence. But we have to continue to engage with these processes whilst recognising that overall the level of influence on decisions will always be made on the basis of political expediency and treasury diktat, and, but we have to carry on nonetheless and be aware of that and not keep moaning about it. So to go on to my second contention, and that is that influencing policy by any means and getting relevant research or indeed even relevant informed experience of practice taken account of has got very much harder. Now, as I said earlier, my time frame is the last 50 years. That's convenient for SRHE because it's the lifetime of the society, uh, formed in 1965 in the wake of the Robbins Report, after which there was something of a, a relatively brief, but I, I think still fair to say golden age of discourse between researchers in higher education and policymakers. Now, I recognise that this second contention is quite a bold statement to make, and I feel that I do need to give you the briefest of accounts about why I feel in any way qualified or entitled to make it. My justification is direct personal experience, which Scott alluded to a little bit, which dates back to the early 1980s and carried on through to the late 1990s, where in a variety of different roles, representing widely different businesses and policy environments from the public and the private sector and the city sector, I was responsible for seeking to influence political, economic and social policy through direct interactions with government, over time representing those various organisations and putting across our sector case. Now the key word in that statement is direct. This is because by far the majority of policy work that I was engaged with at that time was primarily absolutely direct with government, directly with ministers, directly with Secretary of State, and most especially, particularly with civil servants and their departments. The routes through to meaningful consultation 
were very much less convoluted, and very much less stratified than they are now. And throughout this time, although I was largely outside the higher education sector, I was very frequently working in partnership with it. And as an employer representing major different public and private organisations, and for most of that time with a Conservative government in power, the invitations to consult and advise were frequent and regular. I haven't been back in quite a while. There was not the plethora of agencies and councils and representative bodies and special interest groups um, that we have now. And I think really crucially, and I, I know this gets shouted down at times, the civil service was much, much more independent, much less politicised, and really importantly, permanent career civil servants with whom it was possible to develop long-term productive relationships where there was an interdependency of both value and mutual benefit in those long-term working relationships. And like Julie, I had those with the DTI, with the DES, um, and, with the, and with the Treasury when it came to the financial services sector. Now, I have to say that time today doesn't give me a chance to actually give you concrete evidence for any of that. So I'm actually going to have to ask you to trust me. Um, I assure you that that was the experience. Uh, it was for real, and it's not some fondly reimagined halcyon time that won't ever be recovered. And it was through these regular and direct exchanges that issues of policies were shared at a much, much earlier stage. They were discussed, legislative changes most especially, were, con were discussed whilst they were under consideration, not when they had already been written and implemented. And there was a real sense of being listened to and with visible results. We were not told what we had to say. We were not told what we could not say. And we were not strongly advised in order to be heard at all to begin all of our contributions with the words, we greatly welcome this government initiative and this opportunity to comment whatever the nature or appalling consequences of the policy that's being proposed. So in addition to direct access, there was also a period of great collaboration in this earlier time. Let's talk about the first 25 years of the society. And this led, and it's jolly hard, I can tell you, to find any of this on the web now, to a whole range of research-informed and research-evidence reports from within the HE research community, and I know this because I commissioned five of them, um, which were then widely shared and disseminated, um, but they disappeared into the ether and a rather mouldy filing cabinet in my cellar, sadly. Um, so in the relatively short lifespan of society, SRHE itself has gone from being an organisation which in its early days had some significant impact, if not itself directly on policy formulation, then most certainly on engaging directly with policy issues, to a situation now where that capacity is hugely diminished largely of a consequence of significant changes in how policy is conceived, developed, implemented, and also, let's be fair, in the sheer scale and diversity of the higher education landscape. We mustn't, you know, this is not all somebody else's fault, not that it's, any, you know, it's, it's, that, that is a very critical issue too. And in those first 25 years of the society, um, the higher education landscape was less diverse. There was more funding available and especially, as William has touched on, for the larger scale projects. I think within the society's history, some of the really important things to pick out briefly, the Leverhulme programme, which run, ran from the early 80s, 81 to 83, I think, 
a really significant ESRC seminar series about, which Ian McNay knows a great deal more than I do, and indeed the SRHE Policy Forum, which was um, a process uh, run particularly with uh, Robin Middlehurst involved at the time of Peter Scott in uh, bringing policy advisors together with researchers in the sort of relatively informal setting. Not that we ever had access to any clubs to hold them in, but um, they, um, they certainly happened. Could we replicate any of that now? Absolutely not. Um, policy researchers, they are few and far between now. They are chasing much bigger budgets, CD, <laughs> and bigger goals. Um, and the marketisation of higher education has undoubtedly had a massive impact on forging effective collaborations. And I think we mustn't lose sight of that. Nor, of course, must I rewrite history or make exaggerated claims about the impact of some of these worthy, particularly the SRHE projects. Because, um, as evidenced by Michael Shattuck writing about the first 25 years of SRHE and also in his own book on policy, uh, since 19, policy making in HE since 1945, has clearly set out their outputs were very largely completely ignored and most especially they were frequently overtaken by political events. However, if we look across our publications and their conferences, we do have this rich array of research outputs. But it is so diverse, it's predominantly relatively small in scale, and where high policy impact is really difficult to both draw out and to promote. SRHE in the last 10 years has grown significantly in what it's tried to do here. We have enormously extended global reach, and as an organisation, I think we are very, very closely rooted and engaged with the researcher community. We are not, though, a go-to organisation for policy commentary. And I think, evidenced a little bit in Julie's talk, there was never any mention of a learned society community in any of those influencing bodies. And I think as a learned society community, we're never going to have that role again. Certainly not on our own. And SRHE is not alone in any of this, I hasten to say. Uh, there's 50 plus other learning societies in the social sciences and a lot of them are a great deal miserable than I am. I don't look miserable at all, do I? That's how that's happening out of cabaret. Um, so let's talk about how SRHE has responded. Since 2010, we've added to our role of a dissemination and a publisher of research to also being a funder of research. We invest over 85k per annum and that rises year on year and it will, we hope, we have plans for it to get bigger in research awards and scoping awards and do a research awards and, and one of those research awards is the reason that we're all here today. As we launch the 2017 round of these awards, we've really been looking very particularly at policy impact, how good we are at disseminating the outputs from these awards, how good we are at signposting their policy implications and those that can be brought usefully to wider attention. And it's from this process most particularly that we've concluded that as a funder that we're looking for something really quite different to a ref-style impact statement in order to support renewed focus on policy issues. And other discourses have also informed that view. Discussions with our journal editors, and that's again a reasonably diverse portfolio of publications, and with their influential and global editorial boards, have also raised questions and concerns 
about the frequent absence of any policy considerations from submitted articles. It's also a common reflection from our 150, 200 plus uh, College of Peer Reviewers of conference papers and research award submissions that the same absence of reference to wider issues of policy and indeed practice policy is detected and considered to be a real concern. In assessing the value as well as the quality of a submitted paper, reviewers are continually asking these questions. And really should they have to be in this current time? Why was research undertaken? What were the research questions posed? What is the value of the research conclusions? And how could these questions and these conclusions be taken further? And it's the last of these that is really key. Every research project has a point and has a value. As a learned society, we see it as an important element of our role to promote the value of any research undertaken in policy formulation and to encourage the development of these considerations in the research outputs and in how they are disseminated. So, to conclude and lead some time for Steve, speed up for you. Um, my first contention that higher education policy has never been directly determined by research evidence and in all likelihood never will be, I think this is demonstrated by just a cursory look at fairly recent history. Tuition fees. Where did the supposed market forces see them set? One dear to my heart, open access publishing. What happened to the market for gold open access and APCs? And where on earth has all that £10 million gone that was put into paying for them? We've had two applications for open access across our publication portfolio. However, none of this at all is any reason to stop putting the evidence out there and we absolutely have to get better and sharper and quicker and cleverer at doing it. And we need to use all means available to us, from the highest academic research outputs through to all available media social media outlets. And on my second contention that influencing policy has got harder over the past 50 years and especially so in the last 20. There are multiple reasons for this. Many of them have already been covered um, in some of the things that um, William and Julie have already said. Um, I don't think we should underestimate issues of, uh, underestimate the issues of access and that some really important and useful and disinterested voices are sidelined. Value-driven political goals and expediency the increasing unwillingness to hear inconvenient truths. The emergence of governance agencies has, I think, filtered research evidence, conclusions and opinions in a way that isn't helpful. The growth and reliance on social media don't get me wrong, everybody knows, because the ministers and the spads will tell you, wonky is the first thing that everybody in government reads every morning. And Mark Leach and his team have done a fantastic job but we should be supplementing and working with that, not letting it overtake the research evidence. The power of the soundboat in the executive summary has its place, but so does greater complexity of argument. And then the sheer weight of consultations. You have no idea how dispiriting it is. The timescales are entirely short. They are almost invariably over academic holidays so that we can't talk to any of you. And 
in any event, the policy decisions have already been determined. But it's me who gets locked away at Christmas having to write the blasted things. So how do we take back some control and what positive steps can we take? There's no single or simple path which is going to take us from being on the margins of policy discourse to the heart of policy formulation. And to a large extent, this is and is going to remain a zero-sum game, for us certainly, but nonetheless it's one that we are in for the long haul. Higher education research does, has to have a role in policy making, and we continually must recognise that the scope for immediate and direct impact is limited, and also that political memory is lamentably short. But there are things we can do. They may not seem world-shattering, but I think they're important. We need to guide our researchers in all that we do and all that we fund and in all that we publish to situate their research in a policy context as a matter of routine, not a matter of exception. We do a lot already on creative writing skills, but the key aspect now, as I think many people are going to be saying today, is it is actually communication and some direct communications. And although people have had enough of experts, there are still going to be the go-to people. And we need to develop the interpersonal communication skills necessary for that effective communication. And this is going to enable those researchers with a great deal to say on policy matters to engage directly and effectively with policymakers and policy influencers. From the Learned Society's point of view, we need to continue to bring the outputs of important research to the eyes and to the ears of government and of other policy influencers. And however frustrating, we have to continue to respond to consultations constructively, positively and intelligently. We also have to get and go back to a time when we were very proactive in reviving the concept of greater and wider collaborations with other partners. This is really increasingly difficult because everybody's looking for an edge. And people keep coming to us and then trying to just take what we do and brand it as theirs. And, they, and you know it's hard to say we don't want to do it because of course we want to do it, but at the same time we all have to fight for survival. And alongside better targeted and new forms of communication, there's the blogs and there's the Twitter sphere and whatever is going to follow on from those. But in the midst of that chatter, we have to continue to both support, publish and publicise rigorous academic research. But if we can establish a reputation for our ability to fund and publish research that has policy impact, then we can open up channels of discourse and influence. And it's this drive to do more of research impact in an increasingly complex political environment, and to keep looking at new ways of building leverage that lies behind the decision the society has taken to launch a new publication and a new journal, seeking to provide a space for exploring significant areas of policy in higher education globally, one which is very, very clearly distinguished in form and contents from our other publications in our portfolio, and which is aimed specifically at a readership of people who are potentially policy influencers, as well as maintaining that all-important contact with our global research community. Now, William wasn't going to do it, so I can end unashamedly <laughs> as, with a plug for policy reviews in higher education, <laughs> Um, the first issue of this is going to be launched in uh, December at the SRAQ conference. Uh, William, along with his colleague Bruce McFarland, is the editor of the journal. It's supported by an extremely <coughs> engaged 
um, and enormously valuable, I think. Um, William can tell you more about that editorial board. Uh, we have done it because we hope that it will take us in a direction of policy, greater policy influence based on our key raison d'etre, which is as an academic organisation and a community of academic researchers. So no matter how difficult it is to influence or to even inform policy, it's something we're going to try and go on doing whatever it takes right until the end. Thank you very much.